When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. 92% of households that start the year with Peloton are still active a year later. 92% because of a bike? Not just bikes. We also make treadmills and rowers. Oh, let me guess, for elite athletes only, right? Nope. It doesn't matter if you're an avid exerciser or new to working out. Peloton can help you achieve your fitness goals. 92% stick with it. So can you. Try Peloton bikes, tread or row, risk-free with a 30-day home trial. New members only. Not available in remote locations. See additional terms at onepeloton.com slash home dash trial. You're listening to the Rock and Roll Heaven podcast with LD and TJ. Can you dig that, baby? Hey guys, welcome to Rock and Roll Heaven, the podcast where we talk about the lives, careers, and deaths of famous musicians. I am your host, LD. Along with me for the ride, as always, is TJ. Oh, hey. Hey, TJ. Do you have like a tickle in your throat or something? Do you need some tea? <clears throat> well, I've got coffee. Um, I mean, we've done, uh, we've had a little bit of a hiatus, mm-hmm. and I got a cold. Oh, okay. Or or grew junk or something. Okay. I have a deeper voice than I did before. Thanks for pointing that out to everybody. I'm sorry. I know you're a sensitive lady. Yeah. Um, so, Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Uh, we actually did get to watch the New Year's Eve party on TV, so that was really cool. So, Post Malone was there, BTS was there. It was kind of cool, as far as I know. There weren't any like major incidents, but to be honest, um, I'm in like a cellular dead zone, and so I can't watch Twitter and see if anybody like threw shade or tea or anything like that. So sorry that I don't have any updates. Uh, I enjoyed it. So there, so uh, is there substandard um, cell phone coverage in the greater Jonesville, Packlet River metroplex? <laughs> okay. Is that what you're telling me? Because you're staying with your like hillbilly brother, right? Yep. Oh, okay. Yeah. I mean, he is a hick. He has a neck. I mean... Deluxe. Woof. Wow. Woof. Can't believe I'm related to that. His parents must have been cousins. Somehow yours weren't. I don't understand how that works. <laughs> since you're your brother and sister. But, uh. <laughs> so if you guys haven't figured it out yet, uh, this is a different TJ that no, I'm... That's not. Same one. I'm used to... I'm used to working with. This is actually my big brother, TJ. Oh, Hey. Nicely done. Nicely done. Uh, the fun inside baseball thing is that I was originally going to do the entire show as the other TJ and just never acknowledge that <laughs> suddenly I'm a guy. <laughs> <laughs> that suddenly I, suddenly I sound like I just stumbled off the set of Deliverance <laughs> when, when you know, the normal TJ doesn't sound that way at all. No, no, she does not. No, she doesn't. She has a light and airy voice, is whereas it? you sound like... What's the opposite of helium? Like, like, like a, like a, like a, like a, seriously, like a reject from a Cole Haynes of Cornfield County sketch on Hee Haw <laughs> or something. Oh, 
where, oh, where are, are you, you tonight? Hey, Grandpa, what's for dinner? <laughs> you can get even closer to your mic. Okay. He's he's not used to this. He's used to, like, fancy radio setups that, like, no levels and stuff. So uh, this is all new to him. But, uh, yeah, so he got in touch with me a couple weeks ago and was like, hey, I want to do an episode of the podcast. And, of course, I was like, no. And then he was like, please. And I'm like, fine, it's Christmas. So here we are, guys. This is my present. This is literally this is it. <laughs> this is wow. his Christmas present. <laughs> um, and so I think it's going to be What'd a you lot bring of me fun. For Christmas, Lindley, we're going to do that uh, podcast you wanted to. Like, <laughs> really? <laughs> That's it. Well, I got cool. you. A, I got you a picture. And a picture. And a a trucker CD mm-hmm. and a was it a Rowdy Roddy Piper DVD? Yes. Yeah. Cannot so wait to watch that. If you guys can't tell, my brother's pretty much a redneck. Yes, so. big time. <laughs> So anyway, you know, that he's... trucker album is awesome. It's got Red Sovine and um, <laughs> and all the other great truckers singers. Um, it's like, got um, it's who was no, Red it's Sovine? got a bear. It's a bear on my tail and a beaver in my lap or yeah, something. Yeah, a beaver in my lap and a, bale, a bear, bear on, on my, my tail. tail. Yes. Yeah. Uh huh. Okay. So uh, moving on from that, before we offend half of our audience, that's probably a great song. I can't wait to hear it. Uh, we were we we heard it in the car on the way to Mark Knopfler. And uh, it was hilarious. We mm-hmm. pulled it up on the uh, the Spotify, and it was hilarious. Mm. So, but uh, anyways, who, so who, what, when, where are we talking about today? Who are you taking the reins on today? Okay, so um, I'll, I'm going to start this off with a question for you. Okay, are there? Do you have any musical artists, any bands, or, or singers that you're fans of who, for whatever reason, never made it quite as big as you felt like they should have? They Maybe they were just they were right on the crest of breaking big, but for some reason it just never quite happened. I mean, I have a couple. They're not like grand scheme things, but um, I loved Evan and Jaron. They mm-hmm. had the song "Crazy for This Girl," and that was like a moderate hit. I really liked that, and I thought that they would, would they would be, you know, much more prolific than they actually were. Uh, Oppenheimer, who opened up for They Might Be Giants one time when we when we saw them at the House of Blues, they were awesome, and internationally he's really big but over here in america mika didn't really make it right so i think he's bigger in the uk right and and other places but over here he really didn't make a splash and and those are like the top three that i really like yeah i've got i've got a couple driving and crying would be one yeah um they were big regionally in the southeast where i live um never quite never quite got over the top they got really close got some mtv airplay at one time and Seemed to be on the verge of breaking big, and it just didn't happen for whatever reason. Um, Sass Jordan, super talented. Uh, this sounds almost like I'm being flippant or funny, but you know she's huge in Canada. Really, she's big in Canada, so she hit big in Medicine Hat. But for some reason, just not. It didn't do. It didn't go great guns in the United States for whatever reason. And um, it just, it's weird, especially since you glom onto something and you want it to be really big, and it just doesn't. And work. Uh, Jude Cole would be another one, very talented guy, late late eighties, early nineties. Um, just never was quite as big as he should have been. And, and, and there could be a million reasons why. It could be the timing is poor. The the, the, the whims of, of uh, popular culture and taste are, have, are starting to change or whatever. And I think that's part of what uh, uh, was the, the deal with the, the, the band that I'm, uh, uh, I'm going to mention here. Uh, and that would be the Smithereens. Awesome. Um, now, all of them are alive except for original lead singer, uh, rhythm guitar player and lyricist Pat Denizio. Uh He died in 2017, 
we we always uh, when we look back, 2016 was such a horrible year. Oh my god, that was literally was the worst year. Like the bloodbath of the 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 slaughter of of 2016. We lost so many. Like seriously, I remember finishing 2016 in a mall parking lot, openly weeping because. I found out Carrie Fisher had died, mm-hmm. and that was like the straw for me because then, you know, George Michael died, Debbie Reynolds, Debbie Reynolds, yeah, Debbie Reynolds died, uh, Bowie, Prince, Bowie, Glenn Frey, Merle, we also had Merle, like, ha- Merle Haggard, Alan Rickman, like we Alan had Rickman. so many people that died in 2016. I just finished it off by like openly crying. Leonard, uh, Leonard Cohen, I think, died that yeah. year too. Well, 2017 wasn't much better, really. It wasn't. Um, Tom Petty died that year. Greg Allman died Ugh. that year. And and Pat Denizio died that year. We will be doing an episode on Tom Petty soon, I promise. Don't worry, it's coming. And I might cry. I was a big, I was a big Petty fan. Uh, but anyway, so so Pat Denizio was the lead singer of, of The Smithereens, a band that never had an album make it higher than number 41 on the Billboard album chart. <laughs> never had um, a single... Uh, go higher than I think number thirty-seven. They had two top forty hits, both barely broke into the into the forty. Uh, had a couple of other songs that charted, but not many. And super talented, well respected, very influential, as we'll see from some of the the stuff that I dug up. But never made it as as big as they should have for whatever reason. And it could have been that they started off on a really small label, and it could. And I think part of what happened a little bit later. Because they their first album I think came out in eighty six if I remember correctly, um, is that about the time they seemed primed, you know they put out a couple of albums. It, the one was it was the second one was a little bigger than the first one. They had a a, a, a song that was got some MTV airplay and actually charted in the top forty called "A Girl Like You," and they're right on the doorstep. It seems like and Nirvana, oh, and grunge and diva pop. <laughs> And hip hop take over. That just those become the for a while the predominant forms of music that that are that are popular and garnering radio and at the time MTV airplay. And the Smithereens are doing this kind of Beatles in sort of Beatles inspired, very melodic, harmony laden rock music with big, heavy, snarling guitar, which seemed really out of place compared to say Soundgarden, yeah, or Mariah Carey. Yeah, I mean, like when I was growing up, when I was growing up, we had in in 1994. I just remember like grunge was it. Like I remember stealing sure. your long underwear shirt and listening to Nirvana. Like I I I remember these things. Yeah, like that was like that's that sucks. My sister stole my underwear. I mean, it was your long johns. It was like a shirt, not. Your- <laughs> <sighs> Perhaps right now I should take a moment to tell you guys that, like, my brother... Is having a beer? While, while he, he may be... This. That's totally fine. While while my brother may seem like he's five years older than me, we actually discussed this in the car. Yeah. Mentally, he's six years old, whereas I am 12. Despite all the physical evidence to the contrary, I'm five. <laughs> Despite the fact that I'm six foot two, that I weigh 195 pounds, that I have crow's feet... Yeah. That I have gray hair growing in my beard... He will still laugh at a fart joke. I am five. Yep. Maybe. Yep. On a good day. <laughs> um, okay, so uh, Pat Denizio was born in Plainfield, New Jersey, uh, and grew up in nearby Scotch Plains, where he attended Scotch Plains Fanwood High School. Um, now, you, LD, know uh, someone from uh, New Jersey pretty well. I happen to know someone very well from New Jersey. Yeah. 
Like he's uh, seeing you naked and stuff. Cutting that out. <laughs> it's your husband. My mother doesn't need to know that he's <laughs> seen me naked. You're married. I know, but... That's still weird. It's not, not how marriage with my mom works. <laughs> did you just snort soda? <laughs> I did. I just, I just, I just uh, spewed beer all over the mic sock. <sighs> all right. We're off to a roaring start here. So, um, and I want to give proper attribution um, on this. It's uh, from NewJerseyStage.com. Uh, and it, this is a, an in-his-own-words kind of a, a, a thing that they transcribed. Where Denizio did um, a very intimate show, apparently, where he would actually have, just have people sitting, like fans sitting on the stage with him. And he would just play and tell stories and stuff. But he would tell really long stories. So somebody actually, they actually took the time to transcribe these. And it's these, this is him sort of in his own words talking about his his early influences. He says that, quote, Yeah, rock and roll put the hook in me since my cousin Leonard in 1959 took me to see an Elvis Presley movie called King Creole at a movie theater on the boardwalk in Wildwood, New Jersey. He tells me I made him sit through it four times. Okay, so obviously Elvis Presley, that, that grabbed him, as it did a lot of people who would be who uh, aspiring musicians or people who would go on to become musicians at that at that time, late 50s, early 60s. I would think that's pretty common. Or are you still playing HQ? Yes. That seemed like a place maybe you would say something. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of kind of walked you right up to the to the edge of the diving board and hoped you'd jump in the water there. But uh, and I wasn't even looking nah, at the pool. She, I was going to say she's not wearing a bathing suit. <laughs> she's out in the parking lot smoking or something. Like she's not even near the yeah. Not even. She's afraid of the water, as it turns out. <laughs> uh, one day, several months before my sixth birthday in 1961, my dad said. Son, we're going to do something really fun tonight. I said, what's that, Dad? He goes, there's a carnival behind the church. It's a fundraiser in Scotch Plains. I said, really? I was like five and three quarters years old, a little guy dressed just like Dennis the Menace. I had a crew cut. All the kids would get a crew cut for the summer because it was like no maintenance for the parents. They just shaved all the hair off your head. (laughs) You could just run in the woods and you didn't have to worry about fleas, lice, or any of that bleep. And I had a pair of blue jeans cuffed up. I had a white pocket T-shirt, crew cut, and a pair of white high-top PF flyers. Remember those sneakers? You can run faster and jump higher. So at that point, Pat was doing like almost a, a, a commercial for shoes. Dad, So I'm walking around. Dad says we're going to the carnival for the fundraiser for the church. I had never been to one, and when the lights went down, we went there. He said, it's also a clam bake. I saw people eating this strange exotic food called steamers. And I got my first ear of corn on the cob. I died and went to heaven. I'm walking around, you know. You're five years old back then. You could walk around and your neighbors looked out for you and you had friends there. The place was overloaded with people. There were Ferris wheels and garish amusement rides and colored midway and games of chance. There was um, uh, there were amusement rides that I had never seen before with names like Tilt-A-Whirl and the even scarier name, The Scrambler. And the Tilt-A-Whirl is scary if the guy who's running it is drunk and passes out and leaves you on it for half an hour. Oh, uh, yeah. As we learned. Imagine <laughs> you're five years old, the scrambler. What's it going to do to me? So I walked off from the family. I was drawn to this strange sound in the distance. It was the sound of my first rock and roll band. I wasn't even six years old. Did you ever see those cartoons from the 40s where the mouse smells the cheese and he floats through the air towards the smell? That was me. I'm eating that corn on the cob when I hear that sound. I'm walking toward the sound and the butter is dripping on my shirt. I hear this sound, and it's a rock and roll band set atop a flatbed truck powered by a gas generator in the fields behind St. Bart's Church in in Scotch Plains, New Jersey. So, obviously, Elvis, big influence, and 
whoever this band was that's playing on a flatbed in a at a carnival. Huh. Who's playing on the flatbed? Do we know? Uh, let's see. He says, uh, did you ever see the movie American Graffiti? Remember the band Flash Cadillac and the Continental Kids? This band was just <laughs> like that. The Beatles hadn't been heard of yet. This was pre-Beatles, 1961. They had the greatest haircuts I ever saw. They had black ties, matching red blazers with this Joni red crest. And they had pointy shoes and were chewing gum. They were doing venture stuff, instrumental rock, so surf rock, I guess, if, if, if it's the ventures. Uh, they were powered by a gas generator because they were in the middle of a field. I could hear the sound of guitar strumming, quote, he strums the guitar, but I couldn't quite make it because of that gas generator. So what I heard was uh, more like this, strums the guitar, making a muffled whistling sound. <laughs> That's parenthetical. That's what we call parenthetical, kids. Um, <laughs> come on, folks, this is good bleep. You don't get this just anywhere. <laughs> this, is, this is Jersey humor for a Jersey crowd. So now he's riffing with the crowd that he's talking to. The next day at Sunday dinner... I don't know how many of you are Italian here, but my mom would get up at 6 or 7 in the morning and start the gravy, right? Sunday was very important because not only was my dad a garbage man, but he parked cars, was a caddy. And he was also a cop in Scotch Plains. So he had, he had like every job. Yes, his, his father had apparently every job that was available in Scotch Plains. The only person who had a job there was Pat Denizio's dad. <laughs> no, one else, no one else could enjoy gainful employment. Because Pat Denizio's dad had every job. <laughs> These were industrious, hardworking people. My mother had a day job as a bookkeeper, and at night she worked at Alfonso's Pizzeria in Scotch Plains. Okay, so I take that back. There were five jobs in Scotch Plains, and they were all occupied by his parents. Gah, let somebody else have a job, Denizio family. The Smiths down the street are going hungry because you got to have ten jobs. I didn't realize that Ryan Seacrest wasn't an only child. Exactly, right? Um, so Sunday was really important. We all sat down and ate together. After the meat was eaten, my dad's wiping his face and in a good mood. I said to him, Dad, there's something I want to do. He said, Son, what is that? Because if these old Italian guys said three words to you the whole year, you remembered it, right? They didn't even look at me. I said, Dad, I know what I want to do for the rest of my life. So he's not even six years old yet. I'm not even six years old. He looks at me and smiles and says, What? I said, I want to play guitar in a rock and roll band. He looks at me, gives me one of his stares, puts his head down and goes, well, learning a musical instrument is a good thing for a kid your age. You think about it for a couple of weeks. If you're still interested, Dad will send you two guitar lessons. I said, gee, Dad, thanks, like I was Eddie Haskell from Leave it to Beaver or something. So he stuck with it, and uh, apparently Pop started paying for the guitar lessons. Okay, so now you're, you're saying, okay, so he's an aspiring musician from a very young age, influenced by Elvis, influenced by some weird band that's playing on a flatbed and at a carnival in New Jersey. Now, don't spit on that because Bobby Fuller did the same thing. Bobby Fuller uh, would actually do that. I'm I'm ninety percent oh, sure. Of, a lot of people get there. Sure, yeah. get, you have to start somewhere. Yeah, certainly. Just but it's just random guys in suits playing, you know, surf rock. Yeah, which is pretty awesome. Nothing wrong with that. Mm-mm. I like and surf rock, and that's what Bobby Fuller played was surf rock. I love surf rock, and Dennis Wilson as well. Yeah. So there. You ever heard Junior Brown play surf rock? I don't believe I have. It's good stuff. All right. Well, How about Cracker? Talk. They play it. Oh, yeah, Cracker. I Surfer l- Billy? Dude, I love Cracker. Surfer <laughs> Billy? You ever heard Surfer Billy? I, no, I've heard you mention pull Surfer it, I've Billy. I've got it. You, yeah, pull it up. You'll love it. Do your do some homework, kids. Everybody uh, everybody listening to the Rock and Roll Heaven podcast with LJ and VM. What am I? I forget what we're going by here. <laughs> it's your actual name. TJ. You- I'm TJ. That's it. Yes. And you're LD. I'm LD. LD. Yeah. 
You're actually t- you're Travis. Her middle name is Susan. That actually makes her LSD. Hoheep. Oh, Lord. It is not, guys. Actually, my middle name starts with a D, so. You see, guys, this is what I've had to deal with for 40 years. Yeah. This is why she moved to California. I, I because, what, you know What's what? the furthest away I can move, but still be in the country, but be really far away from you. And not uh, in like Alaska. Cali- like California or somewhere? <laughs> yeah, then I'm going to California. Bye. That's actually where I'm moving. Bye. Yep. And that's where she lives. Yep. So that so then you ask, okay, well, how did the Smithereen start? Right? Because this is this was Pat's vehicle. This is the band that he ended up being in, that, that he took to some level of acclaim and fame. Um, the band actually formed in 1980. Um, the other three members, I think, were actually school all schoolmates. Um, and we we detailed earlier that I'm a hillbilly and um, that I don't read well. Well, I don't think we, we've mentioned that, but I don't. You know what the sad thing is, folks, is he's actually the editor of the newspaper, and he has something like 187 Associated Press Awards, all for writing. Yeah, but I can't read. Writing is a different thing than reading. <laughs> so uh, I guess he's doing a humble brag right now. Maybe a I'm... humble. Okay, a humble brag, but also that they have names that I'm probably going to butcher. Oh, don't worry about that. Okay. Have you have you listened to this podcast? Yes, I have. Yeah, I have. Okay, you're right. I'm, I'm at home. <laughs> don't even worry about okay, it. Okay, so the other members are Jim Babjack, guitar and vocals, Mike Maceros, bass, guitar and vocals, and Dennis Dykin or Dickin? D-I-K-E-N. What would you say? Dykin? I will I will say uh, exactly Dykin? what I tell the other TJ. I'll call her TJ1. You know, with all due respect, we love people. We love people's names. Some of them are very hard. Some of them are hard to say. Just Pick one and say it with confidence. Dennis Dyken. There you go. I would think D-I-K-E-N is Dyken. I, I would say, too. That sounds Dyken. Mm-hmm. Okay, so, and uh, I, I was correct. Babjack, Dyken, and Masaros, we'll go with, are all from Carteret, New Jersey, and graduated from Carteret High School in 1975. In 1980, they formed the band with Denisio, who... Uh, placed a classified ad in the Aquarian Weekly looking for a drummer to help on a demo tape. Dyken answered it and later introduced his schoolmates, Babjack and Masaros, to Denisio as well. So this was a typical struggling rock band story. It took them five or six years to actually get their first, get a, to get a record deal. So they're playing anywhere that'll let them play. They're playing in clubs for tiny or sometimes no crowds at all. So at this point, they're still in high school, though, right? No, they've graduated. They graduated so, in, uh, the, all those guys graduated in 75. Uh, and so they I got guess, together in 74, graduated in 75, and are still together and, like, working, right, but they, working the circuits. They met, like with, they met up with, they met up, they met Denisio in 1980. Okay. Um, he was recording a demo. He put an ad in a, in a paper, and I can't remember. I've, I've actually read, I actually have seen what he asked for, and it was something that really intrigued the drummer. Like, I'm looking for a Keith Moon-type drummer to do a demo or something. Okay. There was something like that. It, was, it may not have been Keith, but it was something like that where the guy was like, oh, I bet this guy's cool, and called, and he, they, they did the demo. But then they, they hit it off and all that stuff. Not to interrupt, sure. but that's kind of like Ringo Starr, where like you had, uh, you had John, you had Paul, and you had George, and they had been playing together, and they brought in Paul Best for uh, drumming, and then they— Pete Best. Pete Best. Pete Best, yeah. What did I say? You said Paul. Oh, sorry. I think there was was another guy named Paul in that band. Oh, maybe. I think. Maybe. Maybe. Yeah, yeah. Maybe. Anyway. Something like that. Um, And then they finally 
found Ringo. So it was kind of the same thing where, you know, they, they were missing the drummer. Yeah. The drummer was the missing element. Okay, so Denizio, for, uh, for, for quite a while, has to continue, well, all of them, as they're struggling to get to get noticed and to get a record deal and everything, they, um, you know, they have to continue working regular jobs. They can't just just do music full-time because they're not really making any money doing it for a while. So Pat was a garbage man. Pat actually dropped out of NYU to pursue music, but he had to have a job, so he was a garbage man. And he, was, he, he, he talks in this first-person interview I referenced earlier about how um, his parents kind of thought he was a failure because – he he was in college. Why wow, this is a big step? This is our son's going. I mean, and obviously his parents, as, as I detailed earlier, very hardworking people. Had his mother had two jobs, his dad had three or four, and the, our you know, our son is going to go to college and he's going to make something of himself. And he he didn't. He dropped out. So he actually talks about that a little bit. Um, he says my relationship with my mom hasn't changed since I was nine years old, and as she's old, living in the house and won't leave her room. I can hear her voice much the same as when she'd call me when I'd be putting a model kit together. Like a Frankenstein model kit in 1964, I'd be gluing it together with tester's glue and painting stuff, and I'd hear from downstairs, Patrick! Patty! So his mom called him Patty, apparently. Um, now she calls me from her room on the phone to my phone in the office. Patrick, it's Mommy. I'm 55 bleeping years old. <laughs> it's Mommy. Don't forget to take the garbage out. <laughs> I'm an Italian-American kid from New Jersey who was a garbage man until I was 31 years old. I went to bed one night a garbage man, and I woke up the next day a rock and roll star. Strange but true. My parents neither discouraged nor encouraged this dream of a lifetime. Ever since I saw the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan show, and even before that, you know, when he saw the band at the carnival and saw Elvis and King Creole, all I ever wanted to be was in a rock and roll band. <clears throat> but they didn't watch television. They didn't go to the movies. It was a very simple life for them, and they were devastated when I quit NYU to form a band called The Smithereens. They didn't talk about it, but they were really disappointed because the hurt registered on their face whenever I mentioned the band. They just kind of looked down at their bowl of spaghetti and sighed. That's pretty sad. That is really sad. Yeah. And not only that, but like you went straight for the like standard Italian dish, too. Yeah. Like not even like rigatoni or, you nope. know. Skitty. Spaghetti. Mm -hmm. But he talks about how he knew, he kind of knew when he felt like his parents began to see him as a success in doing music. He, his mother calls him one morning. He gets a phone call at like two in the morning. Phone rings. And he said back then, you know, phone rings at two in the morning. It, it, back then, it probably meant that somebody had died or something horrible had happened, right? He picks it up. Patrick, it's mommy. Patty, I'm 31 years old. Patty, it's mommy. <laughs> Son, Aunt Florence called. You're in the TV guide. <laughs> Son, you made it. You're famous. Because <laughs> he was in TV guide. That was the criteria by which my Italian-American New Jersey parents based my success. My mother goes, do you have it there? I said, yes. She goes, page 27, left column. Aunt Florence had briefed her thoroughly. So I'm reading from the TV guide. July 2nd. Tuesday night, 1986, NBC Television, New York, 1 a.m. It's a Tuesday night. Who the bleep is up at 1 a.m. Tuesday night? Didn't everybody fall asleep watching Johnny Carson? Remember when they had a great guest on that you wanted to see? You'd wait up till 1130 and fall asleep before the guest came on. You'd wake up the next morning, bleep, I missed David Hasselhoff. 
Or bleep, there was a preview of BJ and the Bear and I missed it. God. Sorry, this is what happens when you're on 16 flights in 10 days, which I guess he had done at the time he's telling the story. So I began to read from the TV Guide. Tuesday, July 2nd, NBC Television, 1 a.m., Channel 4, New York. The David Brenner Show. And he says, remember David Brenner, the comedian? He had a variety show for like 10 minutes in the summer of 1986. <laughs> David Brenner's guests tonight include the actress Jane Seymour and making their national television debut from New Jersey, Power Popsters, The Smithereens, performing their hits Behind the Wall of Sleep and Bread and Roses. It's Blood and Roses. The song is called Blood and Roses. Well, we were talking about this as like, <laughs> maybe it's not a typo. Mm. Maybe they just didn't want the word blood in the TV guide, or maybe it's just a typo. I, I think it's, it's a really bad typo. Might be a typo. Yeah. That's a lot of words in a TV guide. Did he not know he was going to be on this show? Oh, he, yeah, he knew, but I guess his, his his mother was just really excited because... Because he was in the TV guide? The barometer of success was, oh, look, oh, wow, my son's name is in the TV guide. His band's name is in TV guide. He's a big deal now. He's made it. I remember hearing a, a story once, you know, the country singer uh, Trace Adkins... Uh, yeah. Really deep voice guy. Yeah. He said that when his parents, the first time his father ever acknowledged to him, wow, you've made it, son, is um, he, he had an album coming out, he, and he had, had a bunch of hits already, but his co- record company thought, well, you know, a cool way to reach your audience would be to sponsor a NASCAR. So they actually put, like, an advertisement for his album on some, on some I don't I don't really even remember who the driver was, but on some NASCAR. Oh, yeah. And his dad was watching the race. And called him and said, son, I am so proud of you. You've made it. He's like, dad, I've, I've had like five number one hits already. Yeah, but now you got a NASCAR. <laughs> so good job, son. You made it. So my mom kind of did the opposite. Mm-hmm. Like I had known for a really, really long time. Like I think like seeing nine to five and then seeing the never ending story and stuff like that. Yeah. I always knew I wanted to be an actor. <clears throat> I looked at the TV and I was like, I want to do that. Right. And my mom always, as you know, encouraged me to do that. Like, right. I started the drama club in my high school. Mm-hmm. And again, we are from a very small town. My graduating class was 30 people. Right. And my mom was always really wonderful about, you know, b- being the kind of person that encouraged my artistic side, encouraged me to do things like go to New York, go to California, pursue that acting dream. And I remember being really, really frustrated at one point. And I said, Mom, I'm going to go back to school, I think. And she was like, well, what do you want to do? I said, I want to be a forensic photographer. You know, kind of like Dexter. Mm-hmm. And my mother's exact words were, oh, grow up, Lindley. What are you thinking? You're an actress, not a scientist. <laughs> and I was like, yeah. thanks, Mom. Thanks for believing in me. Love you too, mommy. (laughs) I think my mom's high watermark for me, like actually succeeding. Yeah. Was probably when I was on SNL. That was certainly it for me. With Jack Black. Yep. (laughs) And uh, I did. Doing that dance. Doing the dance. Yep. Doing the dance. and Doing a dance that I popularized. Well, I didn't popularize it. I just did it. Yeah, <laughs> it wasn't popular at all. It was no, just a really it, ridiculous dance I did because I can't dance, and that's why I did it. I did it as an homage to you. That yes. was my earlobe pull See, to my big that brother. That was like that was like Carol Burnett tugging the ear. It yep. was yep, and I appreciated it. Yep. Ninety-two percent of households that start the year with Peloton are still active a year later. Ninety-two percent because of a bike. Not just bikes. We also make treadmills and rowers. Oh, let me guess. For elite athletes only. 
right? Nope. It doesn't matter if you're an avid exerciser or new to working out. Peloton can help you achieve your fitness goals. 92% stick with it. So can you. Try Peloton bikes, tread or row, risk-free with a 30-day home trial. New members only. Not available in remote locations. See additional terms at onepeloton.com slash home dash trial. <clears throat> okay, so um, so Denizio and, and this group, very influenced by Elvis, uh, all very influenced by the Beatles for the first day. He, he mentions... I'm not going to read the whole story that I was just quoting from, but he he talks about seeing the Beatles on Ed Sullivan for the first time. That being a that being a like a bomb going off in his life almost. It just that that's when he was like, I, "This is what I have to do." Um, huge fan of the Who. The, so a lot of a lot of these influences. So they play they play mainly around New Jersey. Uh, sometimes literally to to completely empty clubs. But they're they're getting on stage and they're becoming a better band, which is what you do, right? Even if there's nobody there, you go up there and you try to get better. It's just called practice. Yeah, at that point, you're just it's just rehearsal that maybe you're making a few bucks to do. Even if there's like three disinterested drunk people there, and that's it. Who really wish that you would just stop? <laughs> just wish you'd stop. You're messing up my tequila buzz. Yeah, I'm trying to I'm trying to get drunk and be sad, and you're playing happy songs, and you suck, and I hate you. Come on, isn't it bad enough? I already live in New Jersey. Right, right. I gotta listen to this crap. Right. <laughs> she's she's left me, and I live in New Jersey. Oh, and that was like the perfect timing for my husband to come downstairs. Yes. <laughs> uh, on April fifth, nineteen eighty-five, the Smithereens, together for five years at this point, uh, booked themselves into the record plant in New York City and recorded five songs: "Blood and Roses." Behind the Wall of Sleep, Cigarette, Crazy Mixed Up Kid, and Alone at Midnight. All in one evening, according to drummer Dennis Dyken. The plan was to shop the finished tapes to all the major and minor labels in the hopes of securing a deal. Guitarist Jim, Jim Babjack said, quote, After we completed the recordings, we submitted these songs to practically every label out there and were rejected by all of them except for a small label in California called Enigma. Enigma Records. Don Dixon, who had co-produced the first two R.E.M. albums, was selected to produce the album. Uh, we touched up the songs that were in the can. In the can. Ha he? Lay And recorded another batch to fill out the album at the record plant. Uh, recording and mixing took about 10 days. So this did, they, this did not take very long to, to do once, once they actually found somebody that was interested. Yeah, but if you have a good producer who knows how to make those adjustments, you can do it. We sure. were we were talking about how in I think it was in our, our Patsy Klein episode that she recorded like two songs in a day. And so if you have somebody who knows what they're doing in the booth, I think it's a lot easier to understand the sound that you're trying to pull out. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I mean that 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 time frame doesn't shock me. Everything wrapped up on New Year's Eve. Enigma released Especially For You in July 1986. Denizio said, quote, This was like a greatest hits album from a band that nobody had ever heard of because we'd had these songs for five years. So obviously they'd been honing these while they were playing in clubs and stuff. I won't go over every one of them, but uh, Strangers When We uh, Meet was fairly noteworthy. Uh, that was got a little bit of airplay, as I, as I vaguely recall at that point. I mean, I was like 10 or 11. <laughs> but... um. According to songwriter uh, to songwriter Pat Denizio, the song was his attempt to rewrite the Beach Boys' "Don't Worry, Baby." Such a good song. But in the end, it turned into something else altogether. He said the title was taken from the 1960 film of the same name, and the lyrics were directly inspired by the plot. Did not know that. 
fun fact. Written. TJ would yell, fun fact. Fun fact! Before. It was written in 1984. There you go. And considered by the band as the, quote, pop hit single candidate on the album. Also, I, I think it should be mentioned. Did I mention where the band got their name? That seems like a, an important thing to uh, to point out. I don't think you did. Fun fact! <laughs> the name came from Yosemite Sam. Like, I'm going to blow you to smithereens? I'm going to, yeah. You varmint, I'm going to blow you to smithereens. Fun. Yeah. That, that was a fun fact. That is a fun, that's an actual fun fact, I think. Uh, Groovy Tuesday was on that one. The song Cigarette was on that one. I Don't Want to Lose You, Time and Time Again. Behind the Wall of Sleep, great song. That one actually got a little bit of uh, radio airplay. That's one that people, for some reason, I think, remember as being a bigger hit than it actually was because it, it really wasn't one, but it got a little airplay at the time and, and got get some recurrent play now. Uh, the lyrics were written by Denizio on the back of a cocktail napkin on a flight from Boston to New York City. The Smithereens uh, had shared a bill with the Boston band The Bristols, whose bassist, Kim Ernst, had caught Denizio's attention. Denizio said, My crush on her led me to write that uh, on a very hungover morning after a party in Boston. The lyrics include references to 1960s model Jean Shrimpton. She had hair like Janine Shrimpton back in 1965 and Rolling Stone Bill Wyman. She held a bass guitar and she was playing in a band and she stood just like Bill Wyman. Now I'm her biggest fan. At the time, Denizio did not give a lot of thought to pop imagery and lyrics, but it, quote, seemed to create a certain interest later on, he said in 1995. The melody came to Denizio at the same time. I'm singing this thing to myself for the whole night like a mantra so I don't forget it. Then I get stuck in traffic for two hours and I'm nearly losing my mind because I knew I had a good song. So luckily he remembered it. Uh, In a Lovely Place was on that one. Hand of Glory, Alone at Midnight, White Castle Blues. And what would become a seminal song later, even though, again, not a big hit, Blood and Roses. Or Bread and Roses, as, as TV Guide once referred to it. Denizio said, quote, I was walking home from my job as a sound man at NYC's legendary Folk City nightclub through the freezing rain at about four in the morning when the bass line came to me. The chords and melody came later, built around the bass part. Lyrically, the song is about a girl Denizio knew in high school who took her own life. So dark, fairly dark song then, more so than I realized. Yeah. Although, I mean, if you if you listen to the song, it's, it's not a spry, upbeat pop ditty. I mean, it's it's pretty heavy and dark, so... I mean, I can see that. The title was taken from a short story of the same name by the Japanese writer... Oh, God. I'm going to butcher this. Okay. I'm Yukio gonna, Mishima. I, did you a do literary, it? A literary hero of Denizio's. Well, you said just just approach it with conviction. Just say it like I mean it I'm and so know it. I'm so proud of you. I, found I, mean, out, I mean, the fact is, you're a Southern man and who I, probably should not be speaking Japanese. But I think I did okay on that. I think you did all right. He says, quote, I found out years later that Blood and Roses was also the title of an obscure 1960s horror film directed by Roger Vadim. 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 W-E-N-B-C. But uh, that would be a very influential song on a lot of people, as we will find out later. Also, it's noteworthy that among the folks making guest appearances on that album, on their first album, a then-unknown singer by the name of Suzanne Vega singing backup vocals. I know that name. Yeah. You know, I it. do know that name. Yep, Luca. Okay, so uh, their second album was called Green Thoughts. It was released in March 1988 on Enigma. The single Only a Memory reached number 92 on the Billboard Hot 100. Uh, honestly, it's one of about five songs they had that charted on the on the Billboard Hot 100. And and it, is which, a- which is which is sad because that's a great song. I it's, love Only a Memory. So at this point, the band in in 
They're, they're like, developing like, a cult but following. But it's 14 years old. They've been together for 14 years. Well, in uh, 88, 74, well, right? Well, no, like, they, 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 they got grad- together. They actually got together in 80. So at this point, they've been together for eight, eight years. years. I mean, that's still well, impressive. Well, three, and three of them had been playing together since 74, 75. That's what I'm saying. Like, yeah, they had been, been playing together. Working together since seventy four for the and, most part. And Pat and Pat joined them in, in nineteen eighty. They met him. Yeah. Yeah. So they'd been working together for a really long time. By this time they're starting to build a little bit of a cult following. They're getting some a little bit of MTV airplay. Not a ton, but some. They're opening they're starting to they're getting to the point where they open for some bigger names and stuff. It seems like you know, it, it's weird because it seems like some people just burst out overnight, like super young, like Taylor Swift. Who it seems like she put out one album and then after that, like she was a massive success. Right. And then you have people who just drag and drag and drag and like put their their entire lives into it and just never quite make never it. Never quite get there. And you want them to because you know that they are talented. They're you talented. know that they're good and it just never happens. And, for and that them. they're and that they're working their asses off. And big that's time. super frustrating. Yeah. I hate I I hate this story. Yeah, I want them to succeed. I want them to succeed because I love a because I, I love their music. I love the Smithereens. They they were freaking amazing. I loved them, but they but they were they were fairly content. So if they were happy, I'm happy. So uh, Green Thoughts is their second album that comes out in March '88. They had toured from uh, May 1986 to September of 1987 in support of the uh, their debut album, especially for you. During the tour, songwriter Pat Denizio had been working on new song ideas for what was to become the Green Thoughts album. And this is the the the, the common thing, right? They they talk about you have like six months to write your second album. You have your entire life to write your first one, right? I mean, it's you. It, it's much more of a rushed because you know with that first album is songs you've been playing in the clubs and whatever for years and years and years. You've honed them to razor sharp perfection. You know exactly, and then that next one, it's like, all right, need a second album, boys. Well, that's that's the sophomore slump that happens to a lot of of celebrities. Like that happens to a lot of singers because you're right; they do have this long drawn out time frame where they can hone their songs and like do edits and you know make sure it's perfect. And then for the sophomore album, it's just that cash. I don't. I I, I hesitate to say cash grab, but it kind of is sort in of. that sense. But that's or, why, or in their case, you're, you're trying to follow up on an album that was, I'm, I mean, a minimal success. Not, not, it's not a ma- oh boy, we gotta cash in on this. Uh, they're, they're so big, they're huge. To the next, you know, it's like yeah, it did pretty well. So well, you get to do another one. Yeah. It, it, with them, it was more you get to do another one more than you have to. You have to do one because we've got to make lots of money. Yeah, got it. Right, got it. After returning to the U.S. From touring internationally, the band began to work on Green Thought. Pat Denuzio said, quote, The Green Thoughts album was written intuitively from the gut. I found myself in a situation where I had to come up with virtually all the songs in a very short period of time. So it's kind of what you're talking about. I had to lock myself in my apartment in New York City, take the phone off the hook, distance myself from every relationship I had, and set about the business of putting together bits of melodies, bits of lyrics, and song titles into album form. Four weeks later, I emerged from the apartment, slightly crazed, but I did have an album under my belt. Then The band then convened in their rehearsal studio and spent two weeks working on song arrangements. They chose to record in Capitol Studios in Los Angeles. Don Dixon, again, was their producer. Uh, who had produced their debut album. The album, including B-Sides, was recorded and mixed in 16 days. The first two days of the sessions were dedicated to recording their basic basic tracks for the entire album and concentrating on uh, keeper takes for the bass and drums. The guitar and vocals were re-recorded later with the proper amps and microphones. 
The band preferred to take an intuitive and spontaneous approach to recording, sort of like we do with Rock and Roll Heaven, the podcast with LD and TJ. <laughs> oh, man. According to Denuzio, they did that to, quote, get virtually everything onto the album by the first or second take. If it's not happening then, it usually doesn't happen. I call that the Clint Eastwood. The Clint Eastwood approach? If you've ever worked with Clint Eastwood, you know that if you you don't get your take in the first, I think, two or three takes, you need to get off of his set because you're obviously not good enough at your craft. Yeah. What had I said? They did one take, right? Yeah. That's what the one or two takes. That's all they wanted to do. Going for a tougher sound than on their previous album, the Smithereens managed to recreate the guitar power of their live shows on Green Thoughts. Quote, that's partly because they were able to buy Marshalls between albums, so they could actually afford to buy Marshall amps now. Get a better amp. Right. They, they like, literally. But, so really think about that. That almost seems funny, but it's but it's not like like what is this? What is this? This has a this this album has a, a different, better sound. Why is that? Well, because we can afford amps now. Yeah, not ones like I bought at a pawn shop. Yeah. Like I actually have Marshalls. Like I have like really good Marshalls now that sound awesome. Because <laughs> we we've toured and made and made a little money, so we we we're actually able to buy equipment that doesn't suck. That's why I'm wearing the Sennheiser headphones. Yeah, because I can hear everything with perfect clarity. Wow. And you are not. Okay. Lyrically, the album contains what Dave Simons, writing for sports writers, not sports writers, that would be silly. (laughs) That would make no sense at all. He said he couldn't read, folks. I told you up front. Songwriter101.com, he described the lyrics as, quote, angst-filled odes to failed romance. So literally, he was just six years ahead of grunge. Right. Right He's right on the verge of. Uh, Denuzio said, quote, I was always interested lyrically in the darker side of relationships. The lyrics on Green Thoughts, however, are not necessarily reflective of an unhappy state of mind in terms of my personal relationships while I was writing the album. If I was as troubled as a lot of the lyric imagery conveyed, I'd be in a terrible mess personally. Talking to Terry Gross on Fresh Air about songwriting, Denuzio said, quote, I've never really been into wordplay or being clever lyrically for the sake of being clever. It just doesn't make any sense to me. I need the lyrics to have some sort of meaning that I can relate to on some sort of emotional level. Among the songs recorded during the album sessions were cover versions of Lust for Life, Ruler of My Heart, One After 909, and Something Stupid. They were all used as B-sides for future singles. Green Thoughts was released on March 22, 1988. It reached number 60 on the Billboard 200. We're getting closer. They're getting there at number 17 on the UK Indie Chart. Among the songs were Green Thoughts, If the Sun Doesn't Shine, Elaine, uh, Drown in My Own Tears, which is a great song, uh, especially for you. Another great one, Something New, House We Used to Live In. Can I, okay, here's a, here's a, uh, a little bit of Smithereens uh, trivia. They were an answer on Jeopardy once. Ooh. And the two songs, it said this band, this New Jersey, you know, pop rock band had hits with Behind the Wall of Sleep and House We Used to Live In. That was actually part of it. That was the, the Jeopardy clue. Did anyone get the answer? No. Oh. I knew it. I feel like that's when you've made it. When, you, when you're mentioned, when Weird Al parodies you, or you get mentioned on Jeopardy as a, as a band, I think you've kind of made it. Yeah. I agree. So uh, that was a good album. Uh, I enjoyed it. <laughs> <laughs> it was well-received uh, critically. David Brown, writing for Rolling Stone, gave the album uh, four out of five stars. That's really good. Uh, noting that despite Denuzio's, quote, gloomy lyrical outlook, the three other musicians are in a, quote, much feistier mood. 
Apart from a couple of songs with, quote, pseudo-mercy beat touches, the Smithereens turn other songs into, quote, utterly contemporary wall of guitar onslaughts. He added that, quote, even if Pat Denizio isn't the type of guy you'd invite to your party, Green Thoughts is the kind of album you'll want to bring along. So I guess he was just, he was seen as being a little, a, a hair dark at that point, right? So that's, but, 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 but everybody, but the, it's, the album was very well received. But like, The Cure was a thing already, right? Uh, by that time, yeah. Yeah, so. You should have been used to brooding, kind yeah. of moody rock stars, right? The should start of emo, like it's moody, like moody music is already a thing. Like New Wave was moody, right? Sort of, yeah. Yeah. And so, like, of course, not all of New Wave was moody, but. And I ran, I ran so far away. Was okay. New Wave. You're never, ever going to do that again. Flock of Seagulls? Yeah. You're not a fan? Uh, I can see you are. <laughs> oh, that Oh, that was humorous. <laughs> see how I flipped it and turned I did. It. That was good. Thank so you. You turned it into a wedding singer joke. That's I did. awesome. Yay, me. Okay. <laughs> All right, so I'm useful. Okay, so uh, third album by the Smithereens was actually called Eleven. It's the it was their third full length album. The album the uh, the album title Eleven by the Smithereens was inspired by the film Ocean's Eleven, with quote a little push from Spinal Tap's famous line, "This one goes to eleven. That that's where the album that's where the title Eleven came from. Huh? Ocean's Eleven, and also, but these go to eleven. I I. Love this is Spinal Tap. It is one of the best mockumentaries, literally everywhere. And Ocean's Eleven, the original, I haven't seen, but the I did see the remake, and I did like that one. So. Okay, but I, I, it, oh, the original Ocean's Eleven is on my list. So there, the Smithereens switched producers for this album, going from Don Dixon, who did their first two, to Ed Stasium, who had recorded or produced albums by the Ramones and did Living Colors, Vivid, another uh, fantastic album that I loved. At that, t- at that point, quote, I'm not sure what we were looking for, maybe a heavier guitar sound, like in A Girl Like You. We were trying to preserve our integrity, yet find a home on radio, said Denizio. And I think A Girl Like You was probably, in fact, I'll, I'll, this uh, uh, a quick personal story. I remember the first, that's the first song of theirs I actually heard. So this is 19, this is, uh, the album came out in 19, October of 89. So I would have been uh, 14 years old at that point. Went with my dad to the beach for some reason. He had to go. He drove to uh, Conway, which is a town, for those who don't know, in, in near Myrtle Beach in South Carolina. Uh, he would have to drive there for work a lot. Uh, when he did that, he would stay at, at a, a place on the beach called the Sands Ocean Club, which you've prob- you're probably familiar with. Yeah. That's where the, the, a famous bar called Ocean Annie's is. But he would stay there, and but he, he would drive to Conway to work or whatever. So we, I, I, and I would just go with him sometimes just to go to the beach. So we're at the beach. This is not long after this has come out, and we're, we're in our uh, hotel room, and I'm flipping around, and I flip it to MTV, and the video comes on for a girl like you, and that's the first time that I heard the smithereens, and I was hooked like from five seconds into that, into that song because it's, it's this, if, if, for those who, who, haven't, who aren't familiar with them because they're not, they're not a super famous band or whatever. That to me is one. It's a that's a great introduction to them because that song, if you if you just listen to the first five or ten seconds of it, you're like, it's this is a heavy metal song, giant fat guitar, <laughs> then that bass kicks in, and you're saying this is awesome. But then they start singing, and there's harmonies, and there's 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 melody, and you're like, the crap is this? 
Like it's 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 really it's a weird it's it's almost jarring that you have these giant this big fat guitar sound and these these nice harmonies these nice tight harmonies and nice melodies and stuff blended together true pop rock. But anyway, that was my that I, I don't know why, I, but I remember the first time I heard them. It was in a hotel. It was in a hotel room in the Sands Ocean Club at Myrtle Beach in 1989. Which is weird because that's exactly how I heard Hanson. Really? No. <laughs> Let me tell you something, Megan. When I was introduced to the Goo Goo Dolls, that is exactly what happened. <laughs> Do you know the story behind A Girl Like You? I don't know the song, much okay. less the story. A Girl Like You was written by Denisio on assignment uh, by Cameron Crowe for the film Say Anything. Denisio based the lyrics on bits of dialogue in the screenplay. Cameron Crowe is one of those people that I forget how old he is, actually. Right. And he will always perpetually be 17 to me. I right. don't know why. Well, he, he had actually, I, I, he, he was apparently a Smithereens fan, and this, which is, this is kind of a, a big break for a band who's still not a big deal at the time. And that's huge, because Say Anything is a cult classic. Yeah, but they didn't use it. <laughs> that's, 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 the, that's oh, the story. That's the, re- the, that's the womp womp. That is, right. Uh, Denisio based the lyrics on bits of dialogue in the screenplay. When the film's producers asked Denizio to change the lyrics because it revealed too much of the plot, he refused, and the band decided, oh, screw it, they just, we're just, we're not, we'll just keep it. We'll just keep the song, and we'll put it on our next album. Fun fact? Yeah, g- good enough. Fun fact? Clo- close enough. Madonna was originally enlisted to sing backup vocals on the song and didn't show up. What? The material girl? Instead, the band got Maria Vidal to do the vocals. Uh, the song peaked at number two on the on Billboard's mainstream rock chart, and at number three on the magazine's modern rock chart. It became the band's first top forty entry on the Billboard Hot 100, peaking at number thirty-eight. Finally, peaking at number thirty-eight. Thirty-eight. And That's spend, not bad. But it spent twenty weeks on the chart in total. See, there are people that would kill for that. Yeah, they would. So that's that's. So at that point, that's their biggest hit. They they finally broke into the top forty. It got a lot of play on mainstream rock charts. Got a, a lot of play on MTV. So well, this is this is a hit. It's a hit. Yeah, their first one. That had uh, this, this album had a girl like you, blues before and after, which is a great song. Blue period, which hey um, blue period. <laughs> uh, Victorian harpsichord, Belinda Carlisle, blah 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 stuff I said earlier, which I'll probably cut out. Okay, uh, but anyway. Uh, what I was thinking is what, what I was saying earlier was that it's interesting artistically to call it a blue period because someone like Picasso went through it and it was a major shift for right, them. Right. It was a major shift for Picasso when he moved into his blue period so much that they actually called it his blue period, where he let go of his con- his conventional artistic style and you know sort of switched gears. He was still doing cubism, mm-hmm. but his color palette changed completely. And I find it interesting that they would call it that because you said it was a departure. It was a, that song was a huge departure for them. It was, uh, cause they had mainly done very hooky, melodic pop, true pop rock, big fat guitars, but melodies and, and, and very tight harmonies and stuff. And that song was driven by a harpsichord and featured background vocals by Belinda Carlisle. So, I'm glad that they were able to get Belinda Carlisle and she actually showed up. And she and Belinda showed up, unlike some people I could mention, looking at you, Madonna. So this is the point where you you figure, okay, now they've actually had a hit. 
What year does this bring us that to? That was uh, 1989, and I, I guess actually spills over into 1990 because uh, it was on the chart for 20 weeks. So they've actually had a, 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 a song that's a big hit on the mainstream rock charts, modern rock charts. It actually p- hits the, the, the pop top 40. The album, I think, that's the one that actually got up to number 41, right? I think they, get, they, go to, they hit gold with that one. So they think, like, okay, they're on the verge of a big breakthrough. They've, they've, this, this band has been together since 1980 at this point, so a decade that, the, that they've been together in that incarnation. They've put out a couple of albums. Uh, they're on, they've done three albums. Each one has sold a little better than the one before it. They've had a top 40 hit now, a big MTV. It, that song was a big hit on MTV. They're primed. This is where they're going to break big, right? And Kurt Cobain, which, oddly... Kurt Cobain would cite the Smithereens as one of his major influences. Seriously? Yep. But but that so but this is about when because you but you have to think like we're talking eighties like we're talking new kids are big and George Michael and Paula Abdul and okay so we're we're two years when this comes out eleven came out in nineteen eighty nine we're two or three years I guess from Nevermind and Super Unknown and ten and ten. And one. And one. And Mariah Carey. Well, wait, when did... Well, we're, when we're did, a year from Mariah Carey, and when we're... Did, when did Metallica's one come out? Nine, uh, Black Album was 91, I think. Okay, so we're roughly... We're getting... We're, we're, we're getting to a point where metal is, is going to get huge commercially. Okay, they've had a top 40 hit now. I think they were either gold or maybe even got to platinum with that album. This is going to... They're going to be big. Finally, it's going to happen, right? So their next album is going to be a big deal, you'd think, wouldn't you? I mean, I think I've learned better. Yeah, it didn't. <laughs> they put out Blow Up in 1991, and it reached a rousing number 120 on the Billboard charts. It did feature, however, their second top 40 hit called Too Much Passion, which was another little bit of a departure for them. And it's actually their highest charting single. Yeah, pretty much. The the whims of popular culture changed. Metal got even huger than it already was. Grunge starts to take over. Diva pops a bigger deal. I thought Blow Up was Blow Up was a great album, but for whatever reason, it just didn't it didn't hit people's ears well at that point in time. Um, wasn't a big hit. They did have another top. Their their biggest actually their biggest pop hit was a song called Too Much Passion, which came off that album. Uh, hit number thirty seven. That's it. That's their biggest hit. That's not even pop rock. That's pure pop. That's just that's a, a straight up love song with strings and the whole bit. It's a great song. It was preceded by a single called Top of the Pops, which I asked you to play as we, we conclude here. And it didn't even chart at all. God, this is just endlessly frustrating. It is. And what's interesting is they, they don't seem to have like the trappings of a lot of rock and roll cliches i guess like they don't i haven't heard about drugs or wild parties or right scandal or anything like that it just seems like they're just trying really they're hard. they're trying really hard they're playing 300 shows a year oh man at this point and again they're opening for tom petty and the heartbreakers they're opening for big acts or big names like the biggest names that there are and it's just it's just nothing's for, for whatever reason it's just not happening for them it, it gets to a point that they actually do. They they lose their record deal with Enigma, but they end up signing uh, with another another label, and they they continue putting out albums. 
But Pat Denizio has to resort to, and I, I hate to say resort to, because he just he loved music. He would do anything to keep playing music for a living. But he did what he, he did what for a while what he would call art, being an artist in residence. I.e., you've heard of street teams, but some bands have street teams. Like we're coming to Atlanta, and they'll have fans in Atlanta put up you know put up signs and posters and stuff promoting the show and right. and stuff like that. Okay. Well, he took it a step further. You didn't just promote the show if you were a fan. He would actually like come play at your house. Seriously, he would play. He played concerts like in fans' living rooms. He'd show up for a for apparently. And if I'd known about this, Pat Nunezio would have played in my house <laughs> because for a, a fairly minimal fee, Pat Nunezio would show up and, and play a concert like in your living room for 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 three hours. I feel like that's the easiest way to get murdered. Yeah, probably. But he he was very connected to fans. He was uh, for, he was uh, apparently really from what I've read about tearing down the wall between. The, the performer and the fans, he he lo- he loved the people who allowed him to do what he did for a living. That's so, so cool. So for a couple hundred bucks, he would drive to your house and play a concert in your living room. That's awesome. And I'm sleep, sorry, that's really and, cool. And sleep on your couch. <laughs> really? So you wake up and I mean, imagine that like you like you wake up in the morning and Pat Denuzio is asleep on your couch and you're like, Hey Pat Denuzio, would you like some bacon? <laughs> before you before you drive home, would you like some uh, sausage? Could I interest you in a biscuit, Pat Denizio? Would you like a toad in the hole? Yeah, right. Toad in the hole. That's uh, toast and eggs. Toast and eggs. But right. you put the egg inside you, the toast. You put the hole yeah, in the bread yeah. and stuff. Yeah, it's yeah. awesome. Um, but, or but, you could, I, I'll make you some bagel bites if you want me yeah. to. Um, do you like coffee, Pat Denizio? Because I'm, I'm making a pot. I have some really good, like, Colombian roasted coffee. Yeah. Would you like some? I've got some organic uh, Charleston coffee. Can I interest Medium you roast. in some orange juice? Yep. And, or would would you like a ride to the IHOP? I don't know. Do you dig hazelnut creamer? My wife <laughs> likes it, and we've got some. <laughs> this bit has gone on really this long, is, but it's but it's awesome. That's what he did. <laughs> so he 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 loved his fans that much, but he relied on them that much that like he would just hey you know for five hundred bucks I'll drive to South Carolina and play for three hours. I can bring my guitar and I'll play in your house for you and your buddies. That's crazy. But it also shows how much he loved music, because there are not there are, there are a lot of artists who would see that as oh God I'm lo- I would not lower myself to do that. He didn't care. He loved playing music. Right. So was he in dire straits at this point financially? Um, he or? was not. Well, he um, all of them at, at one point because and they talked about how grunge really seemed to impact everything. Uh, at one point, it, the, uh, all the guys in the band had to get like regular jobs, and they would still play like three and four shows a week, but. You know, they would get, like, job jobs. Got it. And when the internet got to be a thing, um, he apparently was super responsive. Like, um, like if you emailed, if you clicked the link on their the Smithereens website and sent, like, a question or something to, to the to the email address, it was usually Pat Denuzio that answered you. Holy cow. She was, like, super, like, loved their fans, super responsive to fans and everything. Even, like, so they kind of existed. They kept playing. They had to do stuff to make other mon- make money from other sources, because at this point they're getting no airplay at all. The little bit they were getting is gone and stuff. But okay, here so here's here's what actually seemed to turn the tide for them. They went back to their roots and they did an album called "Meet the Smithereens." It was their seventh studio album, and essentially it was them covering song for song in order "Meet the Beatles." Huh? Yeah. 
Uh, this was in 2012. This the first Smithereens album featuring Severo the Thriller Jordanesian. We'll go with that. Sevilla the Thriller. Replacing original bassist Mike Masaros. This was in 2006. Did I say? I think I said 12 at six. So basically, they did hugely influenced by the Beatles. All of them. They said, "Hey, you know what? We're gonna do." Beat the Beatles. We're just gonna we're gonna not just cover a couple of songs. We're gonna redo. We're gonna cover the whole album. He called his record label and said, "He said I've got a. Uh, I'm gonna make you an offer you can't refuse. The Smithereens versus the Beatles." And they were like, <laughs> they were the, and he said, "They were like, what?" <laughs> and he told them what they wanted to do, and they they were supportive of it. So uh, they recorded a. a, a a song-for-song song remake of Meet the Beatles. Okay, now this is at a time when you could not find any Beatles stuff, any Beatles music online. Yeah, because uh, basically the whole thing with Apple. Mm-hmm. But you know what you could get? The Smithereens. The Smithereens covering the Beatles. Which is kind of cool. Which is kind of cool, and it sold a buttload of copies. Because people <laughs> are going on there looking for the Beatles, and they're not there. They're literally, there's no Beatles music on there. But there's Beatles songs recorded by the Smithereens, and that that helped. That became a huge hit for them, and and Pat said that allowed them for for basically the rest of their existence to kind of do whatever they wanted to do financially. That's great. Good for them. That's awesome. See, mm-hmm. that's awesome. Mm-hmm. I'm happy. I'm happy that at least they have that little ray of sunshine. Yep. <laughs> and the other thing is 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 we we cause we'll see that the thing is is that he, it seems like he looked at the ray of sunshine differently than a lot of people would. They look at it as, I made a lot of money, I had a bunch of hit songs and stuff. He saw, it seems like, just from everything I've read, he seen, he saw the Ray of Sunshine as, you know, I, I've, I got to make an okay living doing what I like doing. I I was never super popular, I never made I never made a gigantic buttload of money, but I did okay. And I, that's cool. So, as far as some outside interest for Pat, he did do a couple of solo albums. There's a long break at one point between albums for them, but they're still touring. They were at one point featured on MTV Unplugged. I've seen them on a couple of the, the of your, your main, your, your big music shows on PBS, uh, Soundstage, I think they did. I don't know if they ever did Austin City Limits or not, but they, they did some of those, and they, they continuously toured. Uh, didn't do, they had a big break in, in albums. Uh, Pat did a couple of solo records. He was actually featured on uh, a TV show, and you can find this on YouTube if you go look for it, on ESPN, and it was called The Seventh Inning Stretch. And it was about his, um, at at 55 years of age, it was about his quest to become the oldest minor league baseball rookie. Like, he wanted to get in that (laughs) bat. So they actually, ESPN documented his attempt to do this. He also ran for Senate in, out of as as uh, the Reform Party candidate in New Jersey. Really? Yeah. What year was that? That was uh, two thousand, I believe. Uh, a spoiler alert: Pat didn't win. Okay. Uh, but it got like two hundred thousand some odd votes. It's better than I did so, in the last election. I, and I and Pat would have had my complete endorsement. <laughs> I don't know anything about his politics, but I would have voted. I would have endorsed Pat Denizia for Senate, <laughs> in New Jersey. Later in life, he, um, I, if I, from what I read, he he was living with his mother and having to kind of uh, be her caretaker. Um, he was apparently a pretty good cook. He would cook. He would. I, I listened to an interview with him where he talked about cooking. Quote the gravy. What is the gravy? Where he starts with olive oil and then onions and then garlic and then he adds some uh, really nice crushed tomatoes and. Wait, we have. And he would make hang on, ziti. Hang on, honey, come here. 
As someone from northern New Jersey of Italian descent, I can translate. Gravy means pasta sauce. Okay. Thank you, husband from New Jersey. Yeah. Thanks, uh, guy that Lindley's seen naked. Stop it. <laughs> My mother's going to hear this episode freak out. Um, so you forgot that you've seen your husband naked, really? Yes. We don't talk about that polite society. <laughs> he would take care of it, but he, he was caring for his mother. He was her caretaker. Um, he was in the in the process of restoring a hundred and thirty five year old home or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but he was taking care of his mom. He was apparently a decent cook. He would make the gravy that your husband just spoke of, right? Uh, and whatnot. Um, he and I've tried really hard to read to find about out about exactly what it was that he was suffering from health wise, and you can't. It's, there's I, yeah. just not there's not a lot of information available. I I try. It's just it's just a long period of illness is pretty much what you get anywhere you look. I know that he he suffered a couple of falls. He was he gotten into he was in his early sixties. Had a couple of falls that affected he had, that gave him nerve damage in his uh, right arm and shoulder, which I, I, I'm I'm guessing musically made it difficult for him to play guitar and whatnot. Well, it looked when I when I looked up. His picture to at least like have an idea of what he looked like. It looks like he's wearing pretty thick glasses. He wore so, he wore very thick glasses. Yeah, he he had gotten considerably larger over time too, I, mm-hmm. and I don't know if that had something to do with whatever. Because he again he was appar- apparently a fairly private person, which I'm totally cool with. He didn't talk about whatever issues he was dealing with, but he was he was apparently just sick for a while, uh, and he died um, in 2017. Again, of of what looked like undisclosed, an undisclosed illness. Did his mother? Did his mother survive him, or did she pass away? I, before I'm not he positive didn't... about that. He did have a daughter named Liza. Okay. Um, and he talked about her uh, at, at length in this this uh, first person in, in his own words story that I read. He talked about the fact that um, she was, I guess, uh, he and um, the the and her mother divorced. And they lived in Chicago. He wanted to be a good dad, so he actually flew to Chicago every week. Oh, that's awesome! He, he just he, seems like an all-around good dude. He, he 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 seemed very much like a really good dude. But he wanted he he was intent on being a good dad. Mm. So the mother moved to Chicago. She had custody, I guess, and he um he would fly to Chicago like every Friday and spend every Friday, Saturday, and Sunday in Chicago. Then fly back and then go back on the road or whatever or or mm. or whatever or whatever he was doing at the time. Um, but she was going to some sort of school in uh, Southern California when she was 16 or 17. And he would frequently fly out there to see her, and they would talk often. Um, and he said that it was very sad uh, when, at one point, he he no, was no longer dad, and he became dude. Aww. And that she would say, dude, there's this guy at school that I really like, and he loves you, and he's got all your albums and blah, blah blah, like it had never occurred to her that her dad was like a big deal to some to some people, but th- this guy that she had a crush on and and really liked was a huge Smithereens fan, <laughs> and and she was like, well, you know, my dad's the lead singer, <laughs> and so she was like, dude, this guy, he's a big fan and he's got all your albums, and he was, and it, it made him sad that he went from dad to dude. Aww. <laughs> uh, a lot that I could, I've, I've picked, read some stories about. The, the typical reaction stories. Little, um, little Stevie Van Zant was a huge fan. Uh, played at the, from the E Street Band, right? Yeah, from the yeah. E Street Band, um, and from the Sopranos. Um, <laughs> they they were the the um, the Smithereens were booked to play some gig 
just after he died and they turned it into a tribute concert. Oh, that's sweet. And and people like little Stevie showed up. Uh John Bon Jovi tweeted about how, how you know what a great guy Pat Pat was and how he was part mm-hmm. of the New Jersey music family and he he I would always love him and stuff. Um Mike Mills from REM, huge fan. And that's that was their original producer. They, they shared label, a producer. Right? Dixon yeah. was a, the Don Dixon was a producer. But okay, so so here's <clears throat> so you think, well, okay, thank thanks for telling me all this stuff <laughs> about Pat Denizio and the Smithereens. But there's there's you know, when you when you make when you're a musician a lot of times, the ripples that you make kinda hit other people and kinda power their their, their boats along. That's a really that's awesome. You should be a writer. I should, you know? With a with a if we could come up with a good chorus and add some Lilton fiddle music that has the makings of a fine country and western song. Okay, I should tell you right now that my brother is like four beers and a scotch in, so yeah. yeah. Please just ignore everything he says for right. the next ten minutes. Um, but anyway, so, but anyway, so, but but when when you're a musician, a lot of times, even if you're not a huge name with a bunch of hits, you you are an inspiration to somebody else. I heard somebody once note that the Velvet Underground. Their first album sold something like ten thousand copies, but all ten thousand people who bought it must have become musicians because it's a very influential album or whatever. So, among the the people, the the, the disciples, among the people who were highly influenced by Pat Denizio and the uh, Smithereens, I, I, and I alluded alluded to this earlier, Kurt Cobain posthumously released I don't know how recently, but there was a, a journal that he wrote. He he kept he wrote notes. He wrote a diary or whatever, and it's, that's mm-hmm. been released as a book. And one of the parts of it is the 50 essential albums everyone should own or something. One of his absolute favorite albums was the first Smithereens record. Wow. One of, and it's weird because I've, I've read that, the list of albums, and a lot of it's like really obscure punk acts I've never heard of that I, I pre- heretofore did not know existed or breathe oxygen on planet Earth. <laughs> but, but it's like, you know... Amongst all, all these obscure punk acts, you have the Smithereens, Green Thoughts, or coming or, from Kurt Cobain, one of the most influential right. artists of our generation. Right. Yeah, he he absolutely t- and and his his love for that first Smithereens album was so profound, and he was so particularly moved by the song Blood and Roses that he wanted the producer. He thought when they when they I mean they, I think they. Uh, done a couple albums. They done Bleach. I know, but they they go to record what's going to end up being Nevermind. Mm-hmm. He wanted the Smithereens producer. He said, "I want the guy that did Blood and Roses. That's who's got to do this. That's who has Seriously? to do this album." So they called Dennis Dixon. Is that his name? Dixon. Something Dixon. I've I've took a lot of notes. I'm not going to go back to him. <laughs> um, <laughs> I know his last name was. Di- I know. He, I know his name, last name was Dixon, and he'd also done some REM records. Okay. Um. But that's who they, they felt like, we, we ha- this is who has to do this. Uh, that's who I want. And Dixon priced himself out, apparently. He was Seriously? a little too expensive for them to afford. Huh. So that guy, the guy, Dixon, who, who did a couple of Smithere- the first two Smithereens albums and the first two R.E.M. albums, could have produced Nevermind. Man. Yeah. <sighs> they, he, was a little, he, he was a little too rich for their blood, so they ended up having to go with somebody else. But that's who Cobain badly wanted. Oh man! So, I wish he had gotten it. Yeah, but but that just shows you that you don't necessarily have to be a massive smash. You don't have to have a bunch of hits. You don't have to have sold fifty million records. You don't have to be Elvis or the Beatles or Kurt Cobain to influence somebody. You can be Pat Denizio and the Smithereens. 
I love that. I'm done. Uh, okay. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm I, done. I would. Uh, Pat. I would like to thank my brother for sitting in on this episode. I would like to apologize to our fans for <laughs> the quality of audio and uh, content. And uh, <laughs> so uh, I actually flew all the way to South Carolina and didn't bring my paper with all of my social information. All I can remember is that you can email us at rockandrollheavenlt at gmail.com. And uh, like if you just look for rock and roll heaven on stuff, you Go- can just Google find- it. Yeah, just Google it. You'll Google find it. I'm, I'm sorry. I will have it in the show notes. I just don't have that great of a memory. Now, normally at this time in the uh, episode, I say thank you so much. Check us out on our next episode because, as you guys know, just to reiterate, we will be going bi-weekly. Life is just getting a little too crazy, and this is a DIY project. So we can. Uh, I'll do it every week with you on the phone. No, I'm good. Um, sure. Yes. After I'll, this, I'll, I'll do. I'll do sterling research, just like I did for this. Um, uh, keep the keep everything uh, appropriate. Not talk about naked people. <sighs> probably won't drink anymore. Oh, that's that's a lie. <laughs> so many lies and. One sentence. Doesn't have to be every other week. But thank you guys for checking us out at this episode. And if you made it this far, God bless you. Uh, we really, really appreciate it. And Check out the smithereens. Check out the They're smithereens. Awesome. I, I will check out the smithereens. There will be a song at the end of the episode. And we'll see you on the next one. I do believe that the TJ1 will be helming that episode. Drat. Sorry. TJ2, <sighs> you're done. This is it. This is it. But we are, don't throw my equipment. Brought that from California. Normally, me and TJ have adorable banter at this point, but. At this point, she's just tired of talking to me. Hang on. You wait. Me and my brother, to end this episode, have a party trick that we can oh, do. Yeah. That That we have never, we've done. done it once on Facebook. Right. But we have a trick that we learned in the third grade. Yep. Mandatory, mandatory, had to be, you had to learn it. Super hot, so Mm -hmm. back up. Um, It was mandatory to learn this, and the first two people to learn it got a $10 gift card to Black's Drugs, and the second person got a $5. We didn't get anything. Are you serious? No. We were were made to learn it. We didn't get, there was no no pot sweetening incentive. We just had to learn it. Oh, no. You had to learn your multiplication tables, and you had to learn to sing this. Yeah, no, I won. I won second place. Okay, so I got the five dollars to spend at Black Drugstore, and I think I bought a kite. And I still feel guilty for that day that I didn't share the prize money with you. That's why I bought your dinner the other day. Thank you. Uh, Well, I'm glad that's that's. I'm glad to know what did it. Yeah, inflation. So, um, what you had to learn mandatory education when we were growing up was South a South Carolina history class in third grade. Because and, they didn't think that we were going to move out of South Carolina. Right, so because they figured you were going to stay. Super important to know this. So um, what they did was they concocted a song. It goes to the tune of Yankee Doodle, and it's all 46 South Carolina counties in alphabetical order to the tune of Yankee Doodle. And you had to learn this. This was compulsory. Had to be done. So hang so, on. I'm going to take a drink. So she's going to take a swig of her uh, Schweppes ginger ale. And I think we're going to sing this as uh, to go out, and then uh, we'll be treated to a little uh, Pat Denuzio and the Smithereens. Yep. Are you ready? To take us home. A you one. Counting in. A two. 
a one, two, three, four. Abby Lakin, Allendale Anderson, Ben Bergbaum, Will Buford, Berkeley, Calhoun, Charleston, Turkey, Chester, Chesterfield, Clarendon, Collingdon, Darlington, Dillon, Dorchester, Edgefield, Fairfield, Cars, Georgetown, Greenville, Greenwood, Hampton, Horry, Jasper, Kershaw, Lakeshore, Lawrence, Lee, Lexington, Marion, Marlboro, McCormick, Newberry, Coney, Orangeburg, Pickens, Richland, Saluda, Spartanburg, Sumter, Union, Williamsburg, York. Woo! Yeah! Woo! Thank you and good night from Rock and Roll Heaven. I love you guys. See you soon. Great. Great. And that was art. That was great. Hey, hey. Walk on. Hey, hey. Big friends,
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.